I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day Sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It was the best of time. It was the worst of time. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the things that made England, to the final rendition of the English Bun series. Uh, as ever, this is a team effort, so I'm joined by Fiona. Hello, Fiona. Hello, and it's wonderful to be chewing our way through yet more buns. Isn't it good? Or indeed, as Brian Clough might have said, <laughs> I'd just like to say how nice it is for you to meet me. <laughs> I love Cloughy. Cloughy, <laughs> Cloughy had something of a... didn't lack self-confidence, the lad, did he? You know, that, that one, my favourite Clough line was that was that wonderful Rome wasn't built in a day. But on the other hand, I wasn't there. <laughs> oh, that's right. I was in, you had another one, actually, yes. I wouldn't say I'm in the, the top league of football managers, but I am in the top one. That's Fantastic. Right. Anyway, there you go, Brian Clough. Right, so this, in this third and final episode, we are doing muffins and crumpets, cruffins and mumpins, mm. mu- muppets. Uh, so I thought I'd do them together, since they're often confused. So I say that, I don't think the rest of the world confuses them, actually. I think it's just me that confuses them. Well, I think, at least in America, mm. they don't know what crumpets are. Okay, well, we'll educate them. You can get them at good supermarkets. Um, and they have a variety of muffins, which we're going to talk about. There's the English muffin, and then there's the muffin, which isn't a muffin. Okay, so a bit like the beet and the English beet. There we go. 
So both cruffins and mumpets are, of course, very delicious. But uh, I looked, I was looking up some references and one E. Ruddock, who was an author on diet in 1879, wrote that muffins and crumpets were both very indigestible. Quote, end quote. He can't have had much butter on his. Can't have done. And I have to say that I have painlessly digested many of both over the years without any trouble whatsoever. So maybe, you know, pop in an extra book by the loo just in case so that you can have a good read of it after your muffins. Uh, the muffin is a quite delicious bun type affair. Surprisingly delicious. So because it looks sort of rather ordinary. It's a slightly chewy bun with a sort of slightly crunchy top. They're not confused, as you mentioned, Fiona, with the American muffin, a much more cakey, sweeter type of thing. Also nice, but yeah, just not the type of muffin we're talking about today. Although in America, we do have what they call the English muffin. Mm -hmm. And the recipe for these English muffins, are them proper muffin recipes, was brought over to America by a Devonshire man. Uh -huh. <laughs> we're back in Devon. Uh -huh. Samuel Thomas of Plymouth, who founded the Thomas Bakery in New York in the 1800s. And Thomas's English muffins are very much a staple of American life, although I'm sorry to say they're usually only used as a resting place for eggs and bacon and other unnecessary things. Well, on the other hand, eggs and bacon, everything's better than eggs and bacon as well, aren't they? Eggs, bacon, yes, but I... butter, jam. I always confuse the Dickens out of the coffee shop when I go in and ask for an English muffin toasted with butter. Right. And no, I don't want egg, cheese, right. bacon, sausage. The kitchen sink thrown on it. Thank you very much. They, they see it as a breakfast food. Right. And in doing so, they might well have gone back to the original idea of the muffin which was originally made from leftover bread and Ooh. biscuit dough and mashed potatoes, in which the cook fried on a hot griddle to produce that light, crispy muffin. Mm -hmm. They were very much a working-class treat until posh folk decided that they wanted in on the goodness, and they became fancier, and they became the most fancied bread in England and muffin factories, each with their own recipe for making their muffin, sprung up. And these muffins could be split and toasted over an open fire and served with various toppings. That was the research I've done in a couple of folklore books Excellent. that I have. Very nice, yeah. Very good. Okay. Uh, so muffin once meant the same as crumpet in terms of its slang sense. Uh, and you know what that is, don't you? So, a soft bread? No, not a soft bread. It's slang sense. So let's pick things. Oh, oh, I see. Yes. It's sla as in muffin and crumpet. <laughs> Fiona, are you making me feel quite hot under the collar? So it comes from Canada, apparently, which is uh, sort of mildly interesting. Um, and here is a quote from 1856, OK? I, my wife, Jane, really hated this quote and gave me, you know, a certain amount of grief for... <laughs> it's not not that it's horrid, but anyway. Uh, so here it is. It's a quote from eighteen fifty six. Every unmarried gentleman who chooses to do so selects a young lady to be his companion in the numerous amusements of the season. When she acquiesces, she is called a muffin. 
Bloody hell. <laughs> That's okay. horrid. Every woman listening is going to do yeah. the same that I did. Oh, yes. for God. Okay, well, there you go. So thoroughly horrid. And that slang sense has uh, crossed over to crumpet, as seen in carry-on movies, often Absolutely. used in the slang sense. So, so another source for the word, the source of the word is moufle, potentially, soft bread in French, or moufa, uh, Middle German. Uh, it has several regional versions, as indeed you've mentioned. Uh, or it once did anyway. So Muffin in Yorkshire in the 18th century, which sounds like my grandmother who would talk about cushions <laughs> and that sort of thing. Uh, Muffin in Lancashire. So trust Yorkshire and Lancashire to be at log. They are griddled as opposed to baked buns. I oh, see. I think that's a thing that it took me a long while to get my head around. And yes, absolutely. Um, that is That is absolutely correct. So there is a famous rhyme, uh, which I think appears in Shrek. Do you know the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man? Do you know the Muffin Man who lives on Jury Lane? Yes, I know the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man. Not great on the lyrics, it has to be said. Yes, I know the Muffin Man who lives on Jury Lane. Yes. So, you know, obviously demanding lyrics, but, you know, if you work at it, you can get, get hold of it. So often there were fresh breads delivered, especially in London. So the muffin man would ring a bell. So irritating that Parliament apparently tried to ban them. Recipes in the 19th, 18th century survive, although they might well have been older. There might have been older recipes, just haven't come down to us. Um, I think there must have been, yeah. Yeah, probably. So there are a variety of alternatives of muffin. There is one idea that they were invented in Wales in the 10th or 11th centuries, along with the longbow. Oh, the longbow, yes, but not the muffin. I'm constantly talking about the long, longbow because I realise that you wrongly I mean, I, believe the longbow, longbow uh, is Welsh rather than English. <laughs> you know, I'm the, <laughs> now, I'm the first to shout for Wales and her invention of most things magnificent, including myself and the longbow. Obviously. But <laughs> the muffin was not born in Wales alone, right. but is rather part of the griddle cake tradition. And perhaps it's because in Wales, we do a lot more of the griddling cake type of thing rather than the baking buns that this myth came about. But I think they, they are nationwide. There is a tradition, apparently, which uh, I couldn't find any references for, but it came off in a US website which had them invented in 1894, which is very specific, uh, invented in the US, and apparently they were not known in England until the 1990s. I think this comes from a misunderstanding of aforementioned Mr. Thomas of Devon, right. who that's... brought his recipe to America. Okay. And it could be that his Thomas's English Muffin Company, Thomas's English Muffins are a big company in the United States, it could be a misunderstanding of that whole situation. Right. Okay, very good. So which one should I cook if I have to make a choice, crumpet or muffin? I was thinking of breaking out my crumpet ring, which we'll discuss in a minute, and try out uh, crumpet, crumpet making. So if you make muffins, I'll make crumpets. Okay, that's, that's a deal. I know I have a recipe for crumpets. I have, a, I have an ancient book, which I must try and copy some of the pages to show folk of recipes my family recipe book that i've been collecting since 1970 and i have crumpet recipes oh, that'd be very good 
all handwritten by me, complete with butter stains. Right. And... Okay. So for the muffin, you essentially make a dough uh, and cook them after they've risen, pr- and you prove them, and then you cook them on a griddle. They differ from the crumpet in that the latter, the crumpet, has a much looser batter, Absolutely. which is why you need a crumpet ring, of course. And I found in Elizabeth David's book some instructions on how to toast them. Seriously? Although it has to be said, as I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, I'm as, about as old as Methuselah. Yes, I'm going to start <laughs> calling you Fiona Methuselah. And when I was a child, we toasted our crumpets and our muffins at the fireplace with a toasting fork. Okay, so talking about crumpets then rather than muffins. Crumpet uh, is apparently made not from a dough, like the muffin, but from a batter. What is the difference between a batter and a dough, Fiona? Oh, now we're getting into really technical stuff that I, I know, but I can't explain. Right. Well, I don't know, and I can't explain either. So I think, I mean, I assumed it's because it's just looser. So presumably you don't rise in quite the same way. It makes but, sense. I don't know. Well, if you can find the words, <laughs> you know, um, get back to us. So <laughs> a crumpet is very similar to the longbow, actually, <laughs> uh, in that ownership is claimed by both Welsh and English, rather than it being able to shoot um, an arrow 600 <laughs> yards at 50 pounds a square inch. So the Welsh <laughs> lay claim to the crumpet along with their cousins, the Cornish and the Bretons, uh, who are, of course, all in cahoots. I've never heard this. I make Krempog. I make Krempog. Oh, is that right? I made my grandson Krempog last week. Krempogs are pancakes. Right, they're not crumpets. Not crumpets. Mm -hmm. Krempogs are not crumpets. So the English Dictionary traces the possible etymology of crumpet back to... John Blessed Wycliffe, morning star of Protestantism, of course, which is quite a while ago. So Wycliffe, when he wasn't uh, dissing the Pope or being dug up to be burnt, referred to a crumpet cake, a crumpet referring to something gnarled or crumpled. Uh, meanwhile, the Scots also tried to get in on the act with a Scotch crumpet, which is in fact a small pancake uh, that I used to eat by the metric tonne. Uh, something that we, when I was a lad, we called drop scones, and I ate them with, guess what, butter and jam. Jam. Because <laughs> so, one of my mother's favourite sayings was, fill up on jam. I think it was a war thing. Uh, but that was one of my favourite sayings of my mother, actually. Other sayings that she had, like, why don't you tidy up your bedroom? I was less, were less popular to me. But fill up with jam. Perfect. Fill up on bread and jam. So uh, the point about the drop scone or scotch pancake is it's not a crumpet. No, and I'm personally, I'm of the opinion that Wycliffe was correct. It was in 1382 when he referred to the crumpet cake. The original crumpet is said to be Anglo-Saxon, initially hard pancakes baked on a griddle with a crumpled appearance. Now, crempog or crepe or English-style pancakes which I make on a regular basis. I often, uh, as a savoury, actually, uh, one of my kids' favourite dishes were crampog. I would fill them with different things or let the children fill them with ham and leek or tomato and cheese and a parsley sauce or a bechamel sauce. And 
a delicious, not to be confused with American pancakes, which are thick. They are made with baking powder and buttermilk in the recipe and often sugar in the batter. So the 1649 Oxford Dictionary referring to crumpet described as a mixture of buck, wheat, flour, beaten egg, milk and baking powder. These were different from the more familiar crumpets of the Victorian era. When yeast was added to the dough, the crumpet is griddled on a ring mould to hold the batter while it is baked. Crumpet makers of the Midlands. <laughs> Yay, and develop the characteristic. Get a <laughs> which appeared on top of the crumpet when it's cooked by adding extra baking powder. That's what makes the wonderful holes in them. The soft, spongy crumpet. They're wonderful holes, which of course means that you put the batter in and it dribbles through. A bit like lardy cake in that way. Like lardy cake, bit of dribbling, dribbling fat. But I just don't think that, other than the fact that they are made with a batter, plain flour, eggs, milk, and other things, I just don't think that they are Welsh and the same as Crampog. So that, Fiona, brings me kicking and screaming to the word pikelet, because I have it on good authority that a drop scone in Australia and New Zealand is called a pikelet. Happy to be corrected on that one by somebody from Oz or New Zealand. So pikelet, this is complicated because to my mind, a pikelet was just the word we used for crumpet in the true heart of England, namely the Midlands. I'd also used it in the frozen wastes of the north uh, above the Trent. But the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, would actually have us believe that it's actually a crumpet, but it's just smaller and harder. I mean, I must admit, I would like to confirm that many of the folks north of the Trent um, are indeed smaller and harder. But I prefer Dora Hartley's identification, the Midlands variation of the pikelet, as thick and spongy, because in the Midlands we like to think of ourselves as thick and spongy. And indeed, many of my best friends are thick and spongy. I'm thick and spongy, but I'm from the south and west. <laughs> well, you know, you've obviously got a bit of Midland in you. No, not as far as I know. <laughs> to me, a pikelet is a crumpet made without the benefit of a crumpet ring. To hold its shape. In other words, it's the same mix, but right, it spreads so it's rather in the more pan like a drop, like a drop scone. Or a pancake. Uh, so, uh, do we think the pikelet is Welsh? No, we do not. And I know what you're going to say, that it is corruption of a Welsh bread, batter puglid, or pitchy bread. But Thomas Darlington, in his book, The Folk Speech of South Cheshire, published in 1887. That sounds like a humdinger. <laughs> it's a thriller minute. Give me 10 <laughs> copies of that. <laughs> They're very hard to find, but you can find them. I think you're going to find that. I mean, I have uh, um, hypersonic and high temperature gas dynamics on my shelf, but I don't think that competes <laughs> with the folk speech of, speech of South Cheshire. Well, you know, I'm a folklorist, so I, I troll around and find obscure books. So Thomas Darlington, in his book, The Folk Speech of South Cheshire, claims that the word pikelet is not Welsh, but comes from an old English word long forgotten, and that the word wandered into Wales rather than from Wales to England. To back his claim, he had a Professor Rees 
of Carnarvon weigh in on the subject. Professor Rees pointed out that the word was pronounced Barapiklat in North Wales, which is not the same as Barapuglid, and that pitchy bread doesn't make sense, as it isn't blackened or pitchy, or it shouldn't be. Right. I'm going to bow to your very obviously um, uh, superior knowledge on this. Not mine, Mr. Mr. Thomas Darlington yes. and, and well, super- Professor Rees of Carnarvon. Superior knowledge of yours in the sense that you've actually bought and read a book called The Folk Speech of South Cheshire, I think deserves some recognition. Ah, oh, I have a whole obscure library. <laughs> and I personally think it began in Cheshire. Uh, well, something's got to begin in Cheshire, hasn't it? Um, so, look, I've warbled on about language. We've warbled on about language for uh, long enough. So what is a crumpet? It is a small, round, podgy griddle cake made from risen, yeasty batter, cooked on a griddle, or indeed, as we have said, using a purpose-made crumpet tin, crumpet ring, sorry. Well, you, when you cook them, like uh, a pancake, bubbles burst through the surface of the crumpet. So a signature of a good crumpet is that they are simultaneously chewy, springy and crispy. The signature of a bad crumpet is that they come in a packet and have a slightly leathery texture, rather like my grandfather's bottom. Actually, I have no idea what my grandfather's bottom was like. And if you're listening, Grandpa, you know, from heaven, sorry and all. I absolutely agree with you. You can get crumpets. About my grandfather's bottom. (laughs) I also have not. As far as I know. It's not what he says, mate. <laughs> All right, let's get off my grandfather's bottom. Sure. I don't think I've ever seen um, any bottoms from the Midlands. It's <laughs> <laughs> all right. Good Lord. There's a fact. Right, well, let's not put that right today. Um, Fiona, carry on. You were talking about, you weren't talking about bottoms. No, I was talking about the purchasing of crumpets. You can buy them in the United States at certain good supermarkets um, and oldies <laughs> sometimes <laughs> um, imported from Canada. And they're just not as good as an English crumpet, hmm. which is why I am um, inspired to, to break out my ancient recipe book and try making some crumpets again. Yes, exactly. Well, I'm looking forward to that, although, of course, I won't be able to eat them from here. Okay, so in terms of cooking said pikelets, uh, I'm going to try and post a recipe, um, actually, of traditional English crumpets. I don't know. But uh, essentially, you create a batter with your flour, oil, sugar, and salt. Elizabeth David's advice here is to warm the ingredients. A chap called Walter Banfield suggests you add just a small amount of warm water with bicarb of soda. Then you knead it until you have a smooth and elastic batter. Leave it to rise for one and a half hours, beat it down, add your bicarb thing and leave it to rise again, depending on how thick you want them. 30 minutes to 50 minutes, essentially. Uh, The longer, the lighter. To cook, pop them in crumpet rings on the griddle. And since it's batter, without the rings, of course, it would run away. So you need your rings. See, to me, if it's in a ring, it's a crumpet. If it's not in the ring, it's a pikelet. Right. Very good. I'm happy to accept your definition. 
So finally, then, I thought I'd like to end by talking briefly about the bun as part of English festivals. And once again, as I probably said before, there's no way I can be comprehensive here. I'm sure there are many more that I'm going to mention here. But in carrying out the detailed and thoroughly authoritative research for this episode, of which I, which I did, um, I had to say I came across the Hong Kong Bun Festival, about which I did not know anything. And it looks far more impressive than anything Blighty has has to offer, but let me try give Blighty's side of the work. So this is a bit of a walk down the darker side of English history. I refer to the Colston bun, first of all. The Colston bun is your standard spiced bun, but is specific to celebrations in Bristol for a specific day of celebration for the city's formerly favourite mm-hmm. son, the 18th century merchant Edward Colston. The buns were distributed to school children throughout Brazil on the 13th of November in two formats. You had your dinner plate version with eight wedge marks on the surface and the halfpenny staver, an individual sized bun. Edward Colston was a famous uh, philanthropist that you see in the city of Brazil as well as being a Tory MP. However, in 2020, England was reminded that the money that Colston distributed was in part at least dirty money because Colston was deeply involved in the buying, selling and enslavement of human beings through the Royal African Company. Colston's statue unfortunately tripped while walking by the harbour and ended up in the drink. (laughs) And Bristol has been going through the process of reassessing its past. Um, as we are all, actually. So the Colston Society disbanded after 275 years in 2020. Colston Hall is now no longer so named. It is now the Bristol Beacon, I am happy to say, and quite right, too. Very good. Quite right. That's a change that will do very well for Bristol. Indeed. So happier, or at least I assume happier uh, news, is the Good Friday ceremony at Widow's Son Tavern in Bromley by Bow, where for over 200 years a bun has been added every Good Friday to a collection preserved at the tavern. The name and custom derive from an 18th century widow who hoped that her missing sailor son would eventually come home safely if she continued to save a bun every Easter. I did find this on the website of Historic England, which has a big list of folk ceremonies, and I'll try and put the link on the website again if I remember all these links. Now, I have a story. <laughs> this this excited me very much. I believe I mentioned briefly in episode one of our Bunscapade that my uncle, Dennis, who was an extraordinary man, he was bound to the sea. He joined the Royal Navy at the age of 14. He served in the Navy throughout the Second World War, as did his brother, my uncle Terry, and indeed their cousins. Both he and Terry and the cousins all survived the war. Uncle Den was a passionate amateur folklorist and historian and taught me much that I now know. And he was an expert on early radar, which is how he came to serve at RAF Manston and at RAF Stornoway on the Isle of Lewis. RAF Manston is in Kent, and it was the home of the Spitfire. And RAF Stornoway on the Isle of Lewis um, is out there (laughs) in the Hebrides. And he was living in Manston in East Kent with my grandmother when I was little. 
and every good Friday we would go and stay with Nana and Uncle Den. And early, early on Good Friday morning, I would go with my Uncle Dennis to the local baker to collect fresh hot cross buns. So on Good Friday, we would buy a hot cross bun each and one for luck. We always bought one for luck. And after the first episode, I was thinking, and I do think sometimes we did have more than one each, but I do remember that we always bought one for luck. And Uncle Dennis would then take the lucky bun and he would nail it high in the beam of the old stable, which had been converted to, to a garage in his house. And when I asked him why, he would say, so that none of us drown. Hmm. Curiouser and curiouser, because I never come across anyone else who who has done that or who did that, and I did not know until you mentioned it about the um, Good Friday ceremony. Oh, the widow's son tavern in Bromley by Bow. Well, maybe they're maybe they're connected. Maybe they are. Isn't that interesting? It is very interesting. And I remember looking at the beam, and there were all these old hot cross buns up there, which never went. Bad, by the way. <laughs> of course, as they don't, obviously, if they were made, made on Good Friday. I don't think I could nail a bun to a beam because I think <laughs> I'd have eaten the bun before it, bun before it hit the beam. <laughs> Impressive self-control. Uh, very good. Right. Well, the uh, final bun re recipe, there's a tradition in, near my own hood in the town of Abingdon. Abingdon was stolen, actually, interestingly, by Oxfordshire in 1974. Uh, I need to say that so that Abzigt... Where, Ab where should Abzigt be? It should be in Berkshire. He's obviously in Berkshire. I mean, it's just so obviously in Berkshire. It's south of the River Thames. It's hinterland. It's south of the River Thames. It's north of the River Thames. But, I mean, it's a... Uh, what's the word? It's a travesty. It's an outrage. So we've had the Thames dividing people, the Tay dividing people, the Medway dividing people, What's yeah. the river that divides um, Yorkshire and Lancashire? Oh, you, you got the Severn <laughs> with Wales, haven't you? Yeah. The river, yeah, you're, they don't have a river there. The River Ribble? Where's the River Ribble? That's up there somewhere. Mm, interesting. Mm, interesting. Norfolk and Suffolk, the Wensum, maybe? Yeah. Mm, I don't know. Now, in Kent, it's the only one I know of that divides a county. Mm. We don't have a, any rivers in Leicestershire. <laughs> We've only got one hill as well. Anyway... Uh, so Abingdon. It should be in Berkshire. Uh, it should be in Berkshire, but it's in fact it's been half half inched by Oxfordshire in nineteen seventy four. Uh so bun throwing in Abingdon. This is a four hundred year old tradition. I'm assuming the buns aren't four hundred years old, obviously. I think we ate all the four hundred year old buns at my school, so can't be. Wait a minute, you had buns at school? We had buns at school. You were given buns? We were given buns. You, you were so lucky. We only ever had five hundred year old bread. Aye, we were we were lucky. But that, having said that, yeah, that was after we we licked the school clean with tongues. <laughs> of course, according <laughs> to a Monty Python sketch. Right, so Abingdon bun throwing uh, only takes place when the town co council votes to hold a bun throwing. And it's done to mark a royal occasion. So there was one in 2011 uh, to mark what event, Fiona? Quick quiz. What happened? The royal, royal wedding. Event, the royal wedding. Uh, and then in 2012 at the Jubilee, 
So what happens is the councillors in full ceremonial robes climb to the top of the, top of the county hall and they chuck about 4,000 current buns down at the chanting crowds filling the marketplace below. Uh, the buns are especially baked for the occasion with a crown design on top of bun uh, and they're often full for which is a bit difficult to believe, but there you go. Um, the County Hall Museum apparently has a large section of buns from various bun-throwing events, and there's a cafe named after tradition, which, of course, has been closed all the way through COVID, and I have no idea whether it survived yet or not. Well, let's hope it has. Let's hope it has, yes. Well, on that note, though, Fiona, and the mention of COVID, which you've managed to avoid for three episodes, which is good, I think we've reached the end of the English buns. Uh, I quite appreciate that I've only scratched the surface of the sugar glaze of the English bun history. Uh, and that there are a world of cakes and buns out there too. So tea breads, fruit cakes, all that sort of thing. But I'm exhausted, Fiona. Uh, I'm exhausted. I've done and I need a cup of tea and a toasted tea cake. Yes, indeed. <laughs> lots of jam and butter. But anyway, look. So let us once more, let us let this be a festival of fun on the Facebook site, uh, The Things That Made England. And I would be delighted to see your efforts or hear about your favourite English bun. If you're not in England, it would be nice to know if any of you have made the cultural leap to a different country and let us know about buns there. Now, roundup time. OK, everyone, for the last edition of Buns, it falls to me to do the roundup and also to report back on the making of crumpets which I have now completed. We managed to work up some bun construction from you all this week, once again in the Chelsea bun department, although I'm reliably informed there is a lardy cake in the oven, figuratively speaking, but I am sure it will become literal quite soon. Anyway, Chris and Mandy produced some super-looking Belsey chuns. Congratulations. Apparently with a split between expert advice from one side and the actual work from the other. Of the decision to deploy pink icing, I have no comment other than to turn gently in my grave. Fortunately, the decision at the last minute changed to drizzling homemade honey, which does sound superb. Zach suggested fried chicken, about which I have nothing to say. I have to say, there was something of an Aussie rebellion going on in opposition to the allowable cultural norms which extended to hot cross buns with raspberry and dark chocolate, which Bianca described as, and I quote, an evolving culinary tradition rather than a sacrilege. With which statement Rob appeared to agree, and Lee had some Aussie chocolate chip hot cross buns too. But then, birds of a feather and all that. There were some other pictures of stuff too, Michelle's honey buns looking particularly appealing. Which brings me finally to today's experience with crumpets. Crumpets, of course, which you know all about now from the uh, preceding podcast. I have to say that I did not find the construction of crumpets a positive experience at all. Nor did Dylan the dog, and I'm not 100% convinced that I'm still married. Though Jane did ask me if she could help. All I could think of at the time was if she wouldn't mind hammering a large iron spike through my brain. The issue was the bloody crumpet rings. Getting the crumpet out of them was living hell. Also, although the recipe said, oh, cook five minutes on one side and three minutes on the other and you'll be fine, it was 20 plus minutes easy. And by the time they were ready, I could feel my brain dribbling out of my ear. 
It has to be said. They looked like poop, but tasted a million dollars. Superb. A completely different experience from bought ones. But really, life is just too short. The pikelets were easier, of course, because they didn't have to use the rings, but not as nice, though, you know, fine. So look, we have finally reached the end of the buns thing. I must admit I did laugh at one person who questioned our priorities with three episodes on buns compared to just one on the British Empire, which is, you know, a fair point. But hell, I like a good bun. Now, Fiona and I would like to finish off our buns capade with a poll. Not whether buns should go into the cabinet, because, of course, that's a gimme, but on your favourite and least favourite bun. I shall start voting off. You may add as many as you like to the poll and vote for as many as you like. Cheery bye. Right. Thank you, me. So as we um, say every time, uh, can I please remind you that Things That Made England has a Patreon page at uh, patreon.com forward slash TTME. We've got three tiers of membership, executive producer, official patron and the hat going around. So anyone keen to support us can choose a tier that fits most wallets. But more than anything, folks, you'll be receiving our undying gratitude uh, and a mention on the show for your support. Uh, we'll also be posting a few random bits and bobs uh, for extra episodes. OK, thanks very much for your contribution, everybody. Thank you very much for talking to us on Facebook and so on. I hope you enjoyed the show. And it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Fiona. Bye bye. Bye, everybody. And these are the things that made England. England. And St. George! These are the things that made England. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.